0: I'm Matana DeWitt, joined by Dr. Drew Johnson. Welcome to Discover Your Roots, a podcast that will give you tools for understanding and applying the wisdom of the Bible in your own context. In this season, The Problem of Good and Evil, we're digging into the topic of good and evil, finding new and maybe unexpected ways to think about it and respond to it. Let's get started. In the episodes of Season 2, The Problem of Good and Evil, we discuss some heavy topics and instances of evil that can be disturbing, especially for those who have experienced related trauma. We advise caution among listeners. If you find that you need help or support as a result of listening to this podcast, please consult the resources listed in the show notes. Hi everyone! Welcome back. Today we're going to be talking about whether Christians should participate in evil. Um, And by evil, we mean should Christians should Christians use evil um, in a motive to do good or create some kind of. Good outcome or make things better. Um, So, what comes to mind first is I think maybe for most people would be war. Like, is war a good thing? Is war okay? And we'll be talking about this in a much broader sense than just war. But I think this may be a helpful place for us to start. Drew, you were in the Air Force, right?
1: I was, not the Army.
0: Oh, okay. (laughs) Good distinction.
1: (laughs) But I, I work mostly with Army guys in the ground unit. So, or I shouldn't say mostly, mostly Air Force Army. But yeah, we're, we, even people in the air force mistake, mistook us, mistake, mistaked us. Mistook g- is that right?
0: Mistook. Mistook. Yeah, our producer mistook saying mistook. Okay, okay, great.
1: Even even people in the air force mistook us for army folks because we were we were doing army kind of stuff. So yeah, Um and I worked mostly in uh counter narcotics down in Colombia, and our main you know the in those combat zones. uh, our main problem was the FARC, which was the, um, it's the armed revolutionary forces of Colombia. And they were leftist guerrillas, Marxist guerrillas, funded, unfortunately, by narco traffickers, by billionaires. So that was ironic to have leftist Marxist guerrillas funded by billionaires. But they were also a mixed group of men and women. And, and the Colombian military conscripts that we worked with alongside were often 16, 17-year-old kids that were kind of thrown in the back of the truck and said, you're in the army now. Um, and so uh, the the times that we were, you know, getting harassed by the guerrillas uh, or shot at by the guerrillas, like we were, it was made very clear to us, hey, um, you just need to make peace with the fact that you might be shooting at women here. Uh, you might be shooting at, you know, 15, 14, 15, 16 year old kids who have joined this guerrilla movement. And I remember thinking to myself, at the first I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting information. And then the first time we had an alert, had to go to my foxhole. It wasn't an attack, but we thought it was an attack. And I was just sitting there going, wait, would I actually shoot a woman? Like, what could I do that? Um, and then I uh, basically figured out, I think I could shoot anybody who was shooting at me. Uh, and, you know, like that's actually a difficult question to answer because you never know how you're going to react in those situations. But that's what I worked out. Like so many people in combat... Uh, you move away from grandiose ideas of yourself. Like, so if you ask people in boot camp, "Why did you join the military?" They're like, "To defend my country," right? If you go out into the foxholes and say, "Why are you here?" They'll all say the same thing: to make sure everybody uh, gets home uh, alive. You know, I'm I'm here for the guys and the gals to the left and the right of me. And so your world narrows very much in those those really hairy ethical situations. Uh, and you think like, okay, one good thing I can do is make sure that I survive this and that the person in my foxhole with me survives it and maybe everybody else. Um, but that's the kind of ethical reasoning you do in those situations. Mm. And that's, that's pretty I've talked to a lot of vets, and that seems to be a pretty universal way of thinking about these mm. problems. So,
0: Wow. So it's interesting that, you know, you mentioned whenever, whenever you're like in the moment and you don't have time to just think about things in theory, it's just very much like... Feet on the ground, like what do I do right now? Mm-hmm. Um, it's easier, obviously, to from the the comfort of our own spaces to think about, hmm, what what would I do in that kind of a situation? Um, whenever it comes to kind of choosing between, as we say, the lesser of two evils, mm. where like neither neither situation is good, um, whether the person shooting at you is shot or you're the one shot like both of those situations it's not going to be a good situation regardless so there's aren't aren't great options either way that you're given um I think a lot of people say that all sins are equal in the eyes of God um so the lesser of two evils isn't really even part of uh shouldn't be part of our thinking it's just evil is evil what would you have to say about that
1: uh I would say that is not how God treats sin (laughs) So he does not in any way, and by that I mean the the teaching of the Torah, the instruction, the legal reasoning, even the way Jesus talks about sin. He 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 clearly thinks that uh, it's an evil generation. There's lots of brokenness. All we've talked about it quite a bit, um, but there are certain things that like cross the the boundaries for them. Um, and so you know, a very simple way of thinking about the weightiness of sin, you can think about the consequences. So certain sins, you know, like. If I were to go out in the woods and fire a, a gun in in every direction, there's not any consequence to that. Maybe I hit a tree, maybe I hit an animal at worst. If I do that in a, you know, uh, in a movie theater, like the consequences are worse. You're, you know, you're shooting, wounding, traumatizing, possibly killing humans, which means you're touching every single family that belongs to them. You're traumatizing them like it has a proliferating effect. Um, that's um, Not necessarily the same of the weightiness of that sin. Um, So what I would say is, okay, maybe in some grand philosophical scheme, all sin is wrong, bad. So in some sense, we could say, yes, all of it's bad. But saying it's equal to each other, then you can't make sense of what God does. So God says there are these particular things that if you do them, like uh, you're like, what if I throw rice on the ground and don't clean up my dishes ever? Right? God's like, yeah, that's sin. Right? I mean, I think I think God would say, yeah, that that is really thoughtless and careless, and that's that's sin. But that's not the stuff I'm going to punish you for. Right? Um, I'm not going to raise up an army to come destroy you for not cleaning your dishes. Right? So there is a a collection of things that he identifies in the Torah and that the prophets identify over and over and over again. Uh, we, we talked about Sabbath-keeping as one of these, but Sabbath-keeping Sabbath as a signal that you're going to slide down into these much worse exploitative um, and, and fatal sins that kill other people. Um, so, exploitation of the weak, uh, devoting your allegiance to other gods. You know, th- this god's providing all your food for you, and you take that food. This is Hosea. You, then you take that food and you give it to these other gods, right? Um, so... Um, those are the things that God is overly, overly concerned with. Your treatment of the foreigner, the widow, the orphan, the vulnerable classes, children, the elderly, um, going from neglect to exploitation. It starts with neglect and then it usually ends in uh, exploitation. Those are the ones that God raises up armies to come smite Israel. Even Israel, His the apple of his eye, his beloved Uh, child. He will even, uh, uh, bring evil upon them because of those particular sins. So I don't know how they're weighted, but I know that's how they're treated.
0: Mm. Can you give us some examples of where in the Bible there are these, um, kind of different levels like greater and lesser evils?
1: Yeah. Um, and I think the, you know, my experience in Colombia was, it was interesting for lots of reasons because I went nine times over five years. And so I got lots of flavors of ethical problems. Um, but one of the things that drilled home for me was that uh, when you sign your life away, which w- when you join the military, you really are. You're signing away constitutional rights. You're signing away your ability to do make certain decisions. And you get sent places. And so it's not just the question of, like, would I shoot a woman or a child or not? Um, and it's not greater or lesser evils. It was like every choice when you're in certain situations, they're all bad. They're all evil in some sense. They all create Badness or extend badness into the world, and so those are the those are the situations that I'm most concerned about. And this is not like an anti-military. You know, if God's leading you to join the military, then go for it. If you feel like He's called, if you've tested that call, go back to episode one. And we talked about the testing of the <laughs> call, or not episode one, uh, season, season one. one. <laughs> yeah, we talk about that. Um, but it is like you are putting yourself in a precarious situation uh, where all outcomes will possibly be bad for you and bad for everybody involved. Um, in the same way that we might say crime is bad for the, people who, the victims, but it's bad for the criminal as well. It has proliferating effects back into his or her family. Uh, so when I turn to scripture, I'm like, oh, okay, I, I see that story. Um, I mean, the obvious one here is uh, Jephthah mm-hmm. uh, in the book of Judges. Uh, he. Th- this is so easy; it almost doesn't even merit uh, mentioning. But he makes a. V- okay, so notice it's doing bad for the sake of good. He makes a vow. Well, you're like, wait, is making a vow bad? Well, we can talk about that more in a second. But he makes a vow. Hey, if Yahweh, if you'll give this this enemy into my hand, I will bur- offer as a burnt offering. So that means like burn it all the way to ashes. The first thing that comes to greet me when I come home, and you can just stop and say like, well, what did he think was going to happen here? Clearly, he thought a a sheep, a goat, uh, maybe even a dog um, was going to meet him. And that's what he would offer as a sacrifice, but probably a sheep or goat or cow. Uh, And lo and behold, who comes to meet him? His daughter, right? And I always ask in class when I I stop there and I say, what what should he have? Like, he made the vow. God gave him the victory. He comes home. What should he have done, right? And I, and I pull the class because I don't make them raise their hands and say it because nobody wants to say it. But say, so who who here thinks that he should have uh, executed his daughter and offered her as a burnt offering? And I'm usually – I'm not anymore, but I used to be shocked, like, that a lot of people are like, yes, he has to do that. He made the vow. God kept his part, so now he has to keep his part. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. Let's just imagine for a second, you have a friend who said, bought a lottery ticket and said, God, if you give me this $200 million in this lottery, I will murder one of my children. And lo and behold, they called this morning and said, you're not going to believe this. I, I just won the lottery. Do you think I should still murder my child? Now, what are you going to tell them, right? <laughs> are you going to say, I think most of us would be like, no, don't murder your child. Uh, and, if, and if you made this vow with God, that's between you and God. Like, you know, take, take the hit. Um, who knows what would have happened? Maybe God would have struck down him and his daughter. But at least – but notice what happens to Jephthah. He has to uh, sacrifice his daughter, and then he has to live with this as well. And, um, and But he he continues living, and his vow affects his daughter. Um, so that to me is he put himself in a situation. Like me in the military, I put myself – I volunteered every time to go on these combat deployments, and I put myself in this situation – where every route out was bad for me and bad for everybody else involved. Mm. So, Hmm. And that's like when we talk about should we participate and we'll get to just war theory, like when should a nation go to war? Those are the kinds of decisions that you really need to be thinking about when you send young women and men off to war. You are guaranteeing lifetime traumas for those people. Uh, I, I did a, a book club with a bunch of young men at my school where we read this book on, called On Killing. It was talking about why combat soldiers typically will not shoot and try to kill other people, even in combat, even to save their own lives, why they hesitate from killing. And uh, we zoomed in. Uh, a, a friend of mine who is an Afghan vet and had severe PTSD, cannot hold to a, a job to this day 10 years later. And we just interviewed. He was very gracious with his time. He's very open about his story, and I could see the look on the uh, the guys in the room when they were watching him. Um, guys who had all glamorized violence their whole life. They played video games. They'd some of them had thought about joining the military, and now they're watching this guy ten years past who can't barely finish a sentence. And he used to be very eloquent in his speech, and now he stutters and stumbles a lot. And has had drug addiction and alcohol addiction problems, uh, violence problems, and he's managing it now. And him saying things like, I thought I joined the Army for four years. I did not realize I was signing up for life. And he represents uh, hundreds of thousands of people. So uh, when we talk about going to war or a just cause it's worth committing our troops for, or committing any, I mean, this can happen in communities, too. What, what, do police, what do we send out police officers to do where we might send somebody else out to do it? Um, there are proliferating negative effects that will always come from these things and we and they're burned into the bodies of the people who bear them for years. Um, and so I think we just have to be very honest and careful about what we're actually talking about when we talk about participating in things that are bad in order to have some eventual good come out of it. Mm-hmm. And not saying that we shouldn't because I think there are times when we absolutely should. I'm really glad my grandparents and great uncles, went to war. And I'm glad glad people supported uh, the World War II and, like, stopped the Nazis. But um, that might be more the exception in future wars than the rule.
0: Mm. So the situation with Jephthah, for example, was a self-inflicted tragedy to an extent because he put himself in that position. Um, You gave the example of, you know, choosing to sign up for, obviously, some people are drafted which is not like their decision. They just kind of have to go. Right. Uh, some people choose to uh, join the military. Is that whenever we find ourselves in a you know, lesser of two evils kind of situation where no matter what we choose, it's going to extend badness somewhere for people. Um, do those kind of situations only happen because we have made a choice to put ourselves in that situation? Or do those um, kind of all bad options, decision points, Happen even to people who haven't intentionally put themselves in those positions.
1: Yeah, no, I think you know. Again, going back to that book I reference on Nahum and the Congo. I mean, and, and and this book on killing, where they talk about you know the realities of war, especially in war torn uh, parts of the globe that we talk about. Um, there are many people who just get bound up. Um, Jacob and Onyumbe and others. They just get caught up into child soldiering, not because they thought it was cool and decided to come up. It was because they were going to kill everybody. If unless you know, we'll join or we'll kill you, right? Even the conscripts we worked with, it was kind of like they went to bars at night and picked these guys up in trucks and threw them. And now you're in the army, and they're just find themselves. These city kids find themselves out in the middle of the Amazon jungle for 18 months, just serving there. So no, it's not all, um, it's not all voluntary. Uh, there's, there's going to be situations where there is just no good way out because the, the entangled brokenness, the corruption all the way down, I think is one of the things that, and I joined the military when I was 17. So this kind of was burned into me as I was still developing as a teenager. Like even my brain was still developing for three to five more years, um, And so this hit me early on that for most of us, we don't really have a sense, unless you've been to these areas and kind of see how this actually works on the ground, it's very easy to describe and talk about these issues. It's very difficult to conceptualize how tricky and how psychically scarring, and psychically, I mean, it just, it it burns your soul in a way that doesn't, it doesn't ever get released. It stays there forever, even if it can be healed. So... Uh, There has to be, you know, in some sense, you want people who have had primary contact with these situations to be deeply involved in all these decisions. And you could say the same things about missions agencies, churches who are thinking about moving into certain parts of country or certain parts of the world. Like you need local knowers who know what's actually going on. You might conscientiously make the decisions. I was just meeting with a Chinese student last week. who's He's Finish his degree here in the states. He's going back to teach in the underground church, and he knows that he's going back to possibly put himself in prison for life. Um, so those are things that he's vowed to do because he feels God has called him to do it. So, so there are there are even good and noble vows that will have those consequences that are just real. But if they they feel called to it, uh, then then fine. Um, You know, as long as the call is assessed, weighed, we go through the process. See episode, or sorry, season one, uh, where we talk about calling and how do you vouch for calling and that kind of thing. So,
0: Hmm. so if you could summarize kind of this approach, like how can people how can people discern whenever they find themselves in a situation of choosing, you know, the lesser of two evils or the, as you said, like discerning what God's calling you to do in the moment, specifically um, in your situation, because it's there's no one-size-fits-all approach. So asking for like a general summary uh, rule or tip is kind of a,
1: the uh, pro tips. ironic.
0: yeah. pro <laughs> um, But is there just maybe a, like a, almost like a railing for someone to hang on to when they find themselves in a situation where I just don't know what to choose? There's no good option here. Where's the railing they can hang on to is just first to kind of steady them in those moments.
1: Uh, so if they're in that moment right now, like just hang on and it, it, it will be okay. Like God will, it doesn't matter what it is. We we've all known and seen people who've been in the worst possible human situations. They've been victimized or even been the victimizer and God can still heal and pull them out of that. Right. Even if it's a lifelong wound, uh, that never goes away entirely, like the wounds of Christ on his hands and His side. Um, but if you're talking about preparing for those things that will inevitably come, like when we say, hey, when you read Job, don't feel sorry for Job. You're going to be Job probably eventually. Many people will. Like God's going to strip everything away from you that you thought supported you, um, and it's going to happen, is I think, first of all, we're, we keep saying choosing the lesser of two evils. I want to make sure that we understand I don't actually believe we're ever choosing the lesser of two evils. Um, maybe in financial terms, yes, uh, if we're making a financial decision, but um I'm talking about when there are – where everything is equally weighted. It's, mm. it's all problematic. And we're not – you know, discipleship in Christ, being a part of the kingdom of God, is not being a good decision maker. Um, so if you want to start working on this right now, which we should all be doing, the, the goal is to become wise, right? Uh, listen, you simple ones. Learn wisdom. We're all simple ones in, in many ways, right? Um, So that when you get in these situations, you have a developed imagination that can both hear God and see something other than the way it is. You still might get stuck in a situation where there's just no good answers. Uh, I think about this with like, okay, so I'm a a dad. So I constantly run scenarios in my head if somebody broke into my house. I don't know if, if my wife does this or not, but I constantly run these scenarios. If somebody broke in, what would I do? And part of that always is like, well, what if they're like, on drugs are persistently violent and I have to get, you know, I have to meet them with violence. I can't just scare them out of the house, you know, by yelling at them or something. Um, I don't want to commit violence on anybody. I don't want to be involved with that at all. I used to do that back in my old days and I, it's all nowhere ski. Right. Um, So I I do think there's a way in which um, no matter how wise and discerning you get, how much you try to, uh, you know, take off ramps to avoid, obviously foolish things you can still get stuck in situations where you have to do things that are bad that are what the biblical authors would call evil but we just say calamitous disastrous it's bad for you it's bad for them um but it's just the the necessary thing at the moment and you might always question it from that point on as we can say okay like you had to do that but you might for the rest of your life even if it was the right call say was it the right call like till the day you die um this, these are, you know, these are the real issues that real people face uh, constantly. And pe- even victims, right? Because they, should I have gone down that street or I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't have called that guy back. I shouldn't have done this. I should have not yelled at this person or I should have hugged them before they left, you know. Uh, so people are constantly questioning uh, those things, whether they're victimizer or victim. Uh, we are not decision makers. We're not grand, little divine decision makers. We're called to be wise and discerning. As best we can, knowing like Ecclesiastes reminds us the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked, uh, the rain is withheld from the righteous and like we don't we don't get all the answers here, and pain is going to come mm-hmm. um, which in the biblical view is meant to like exacerbate the hope that we have mm-hmm. right what a great hope we have uh, the age of resurrection to look forward to that we will be able to stand in that age and we'll be able to enter the renewed earth mm-hmm. so
0: I feel like in a in kind of a weird, maybe morbid way, it takes some pressure off too. Because if if you know, like nothing I do is going to be able to make things just magically better, (laughs) Right. (laughs) leaving that to really to the Lord, because that's, that is the Lord's job. And he promises that he will one day. Um, Yeah. Almost taking a little bit. No. Yeah. Just taking a little bit of pressure off. What were you going to say?
1: Well, the pressure off thing, I felt this with, when I was working on a, a talk for EarthX on environmentalism, actually here in Dallas, um, but I, it was interesting to me that, to hear atheist philosophers of the environment who are noting, you know, a 100 years ago, there's basically a Christian view of the environment, that God was sovereign, that he feeds the ducks, he feed, He takes care of the wetlands, he, and then it's our job as humans, this is the Christian view, our job as humans to like faithfully steward what he's given us, right? Um, And what happened is the environmental movement became largely uh, de-religious and it became you and I were the only hope of this universe. Only you and I can save whales. Only you and I can prevent forest fires and it puts all the burden on us. And now uh, environmentalists and philosophers of the environment are going, like, this is incoherent. There's, like, no way to make this work. So if I want to save this animal in the the wetlands, that means I have to kill off this predator animal because this one is destroyed. Like, you're choosing violence. Mm -hmm. You're choosing one way. But they'll all point out, like – Nobody gets out of the trap. Um, and I'm like, maybe we should go back to that one where God is sovereign. He, we, you know, he, when we look at the lilies of the field, when we look at the birds of the air, we actually really believe that God takes care of them. But we also have to faithfully participate in stewarding what he's mm, given us.
0: A participant, not yeah. the one in charge. <laughs>
1: yeah, and the same thing with violence. There's a sense, you know, and, or, or doing harm in some way, strategic harms. Uh, or surgery, right? Like you say, surgically, sur- surgery is strategically wounding somebody for their health, right? So when we talk about participating in harms, they should always be surgery-like harms, where we're, I mean, cutting in, if you ever had surgery, cutting in to somebody or somebody cutting into you is not natural, it is like, it is harm, and that's why it takes so long to heal from it. But it's got this grander goal, and it's done very carefully and very constrained proportions to make sure that that grander goal is accomplished. So sloppiness, foolishness, uh, ah, we got this mentality that 's the n- <laughs> young men and even old men like me this oh, i got this that 's the that 's the one we want to lean into and it 's the dumbest mentality ever uh, we don 't got this <laughs> god 's got it, and we can petition him, and we can faithfully participate.
0: Mm. Well said. So when it comes to, to when it comes to situations, we've talked a little bit about like when we find ourselves in situations. So like whenever we <laughs> kind of just happen to be in the middle of it and it affects us and we can't really help it, or maybe we've made a decision that puts us in the center of a situation. That's one thing. A different situation is what about whenever we are um, witnessing violence or injustice or some kind of evil from afar? Yeah. Um, There is is there a sense of responsibility where if we see it, like, we then become responsible if we don't take action against it? Where is the – what should Christians do in those cases? And I think this is often, like, in terms of going to war. Like, should we go to war for the sake of the greater good for someone else, even if it doesn't affect us directly? Like, where is the line there?
1: Yeah. Okay, only the toughest question ever (laughs) in the history of, like, uh, ethical dilemmas. Um. Yeah, I think this is why you can talk about avoiding evil is never good enough, right? For me to say, like, we're just going to, like, you take this kind of the purity mentality where I'm just not going to get near anything dark or evil or bad or wrong or unholy. Um, but as an example, there, uh, I was walking down the street, this is a week and a half ago in, in New York, and... It's very rare in New York to actually see crime. New York's got like the lowest crime rate in the country. And so it, mm-hmm. it, it, it didn't used to be, it used to have one mm-hmm. of the highest crime rates in the country like 20 years ago. But it struck me also how wild it was to see somebody um, like blatantly being criminal in public. I was like, whoa, I have not seen this in a long time. And it, and it was a guy just, I was walking to work and there was a guy yelling at his, I, I assumed to be girlfriend, just right there on the sidewalk at nine in the morning um, and he's yelling like he looks as angry as a human can possibly. His arms are flying all over the place, and uh, and then I saw him lean in and choke her, like grab her neck, choke her, and put her against the wall. And that's when I was just like, oh, oh you know. So I I ran up on him and it's like, hey, hey, what's going on here, you know? Um, and then he came over to me and threatened to punch me a bunch of times, and and then I, I lied to him and told him there was a police station right around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> And he walked, which is not untrue. There was a, there's a parking meter <laughs> maid station around the corner, which is the New York City Police. Uh, so it was a, it was a veiled, uh, veiled truth. Um,
0: <laughs> so that, so were you? You would say you were participating in evil there by. I was with Holy, Well, uh, no, so if you think
1: there are lies and truths and those are easy like everything, you think those are easy and it, well, Jesus veils lots of things from people all the mm-hmm. time, right? But we don't say Jesus was a liar. Please we just can. say he was strategically revealing what he needed to in order to <laughs> accomplish his ends. And we're we we're all constantly doing this. And the sinful version of it is like going social media where people are strategically curating and veiling mm-hmm. in order to present something that they actually are not, right? An unreal real, uh, version of themselves. Uh, which we 're all doing in some way or another, so yeah, so I guess i did i didn 't think about, it. but if I just had a well i 'm going to avoid evil right i 'd be like well this is this is an evil situation, this guy 's choking his girl, and of course, I know like the stats are literally at the moment, the stats began running in my head if a man does a full or a frontal choke on a woman, a partner of his the chances that he will murder her eventually go up exponentially. There's all kinds of things that men can do abusively to women, but the choking them eye to eye in the front is actually an indicator that murder is the next step. I don't know why that stat just hit me in that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And so yeah, avoiding the situation wasn't, it wouldn't be just, it's not what I'm called to do as a Christian. The answer though wasn't to go over there and like start pounding on him or jump him from behind or something. I thought, and this is my own ethical decision. I thought the answer was is to be willing to redirect and absorb his violence if that was what it took. So he's in my fit, fa- like you know, three inches away from my face, spitting on me, talking about how he's going to punch me. I kept my hands in front of me and just said, "Hey, hey, I don't want any trouble," you know. And he's like, "I'm going to punch you." Okay, if you need to do that, go ahead. And but there's a police station right there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think there's there's a real. Because of our American religions of violence and bearing arms and these things, so I think we get that all mixed in there a little bit too much in the sense that even even in the military and combat zones, you can't just shoot who – in fact, rules of engagement in combat zones are much more restrictive than for police officers. So a police officer, if they just feel threatened, they can use fatal uh, deadly force in mo- in almost all districts and jurisdictions. In the combat zones I was in – you had to receive violence first, and then you could return it. So you had to get shot at first, uh, or you had to see somebody in grave bodily da- uh, danger uh, in order before you could start employing violence. And so I think Christians could stand to start thinking – I think this is something like what Jesus was referring to, this willingness to absorb violence for the sake of the weaker person, right? For the sake of the other. Um, and I, I was not heroic in that moment. I was really sitting there thinking like, "Oh, dear Lord, please don't let him punch me. I really don't want to receive the violence. Um, but avoiding evil wasn't – wasn't. I don't think that was the Christian – I don't think it's the Torah option is to avoid it. We have to stand in those moments. Now, going to war – is going to war just like a grand version of that? Um, well, obviously, when we go to war, the American mentality, and as with almost everybody, is you go to war. You don't go to war to lose wins. You don't go to war to absorb violence. You go to inflict violence to uh, to kill as many of them, make as many of them die for their country, as they say, uh, and not any of us. And so th- this is part of a just war theory. Augustine kind of lays out: here's here's a time when nations should consider going to in defense of the weak. Uh, Where there's a clear victory that, you know, where it can actually do the thing that you're trying to – you shouldn't just go to war if it can't do anything that it's trying to do. Um, This has been developed a lot uh, over the last uh, 1,500 years. There is, though – I mean, you have to think about, again, reality. So, in Ukraine right now – so, if you were an 18-year-old Russian soldier in the Ukraine, most of which went into Ukraine believing they were in a just war – they believed Ukraine and, you know, unless there's some real secret that we're going to find out later, they, they believed that Ukraine was being controlled by a Nazi party and that Russia was going in to liberate. And they actually expected the Ukrainians to warmly welcome them like, oh, you're going to release us from uh, this, this, not these Nazi, uh, these crazy Nazi parties that are trying to control and take over Ukraine. So, you know, in many ways, from the soldiers perspective, the, the Ukrainian invasion is a perfectly just war. Once they got there, you listen to these phone calls with them and their moms, and they're all like, there are no Nazis here. We're killing civilians, you know, and like like this guilt. We're killing civilians, and nobody wants us here, and they all want us to die and go away. And um, so there really is this issue of, again, discernment, like, do you actually know uh, who, who has the right to make these kind of a calls? Uh, and... Fortunately, for the most part, America has been fairly restrained in making these calls, sometimes better than others. Um, but I don't think there is a simple, you know, and everybody will Monday morning quarterback. I don't think there's a simple case where we can say, yes, we must absolutely get a war. Here will be the outcomes. And we know all of this. And we've had enough intelligence failures, as they say, to at least be skeptical of those claims and for Christians to say maybe not. The other part, and I actually consulted a friend of mine who was 35 years in Marine Special Operations when, uh, and thinking about this topic, and he said, you also have to think about that soldier in Ukraine um, who can't just walk away from this, this job, right? So, in America, we actually have a conscientious objector. So, you can't do it in battle. You have to, like, finish your job there. But you can say, look, I, don't, I actually have a conscientious objection to what's going on here, and we have a legal process to separate you from uh, that role. Uh, and I think Christians should celebrate the fact that, I mean, I think m- I think most Christians would look down on somebody if they said, no, as a Christian, I don't think it's right to go fight or be in the military. Um, but it's actually, uh, it's a legal protection that we should actually think is one that we might want to pull on more often than not. Mm-hmm. Um, we can't solve any national problems here. And I, I mean, we have the whole church and state, how should Christians participate in the state? And that all depends on which state we're talking about. And um, so I can't be prescriptive here at all. Um, I can just say you can hear the wisdom, discernment, and restraint is probably the best way in when you're talking about violence. Because you really are talking about committing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in every operation, at least thousands of people, to lifelong scars that will have deleterious effects for them and their children and their children's children for generations to come. Mm. So,
0: like The situation with you and the man who is being violent – you, The only thing you were putting on the line was your own safety. Whereas, whenever you're making decisions in a war, you're putting the safety and, and well being and lives and uh, psyches of yeah. all these people on the line as well in, in and one decision. So the drug addictions weighty. that
1: will come from them that will increase mm. street drug addiction, the alcoholism, the abuse of spouses, and, and, and not bad people, like people struggling and getting and resorting to violence. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it spins up a whole. Mechanism. We like to talk about the Greatest Generation in World War II, but you know, uh, as somebody who is parented by a, a child of the Greatest Generation, I mean, they all they all say they weren't great parents, right? Um, there was because they had lots of undealt with issues um, that spun out into that they come back into our population. So they create it's bad for everybody involved. So there are certain things you know that I think would be worth it, right? If you saw somebody. Like in mortal danger and you just felt like if I put my life on the line for this person or like uh, flight 93 and during September 11th, they knew that the flame was going to be used to to kill Americans down in Washington, D.C. So they put their life on the line, impacted the violence or absorbed the violence for the sake of everybody else. Uh, I don't think we should look down on that at all. it's just really tricky. It requires a lot of wisdom and also wisdom saying, like, we might have chosen the wrong way. We just wouldn't have known at the time. Look, looking back now, okay, we chose the wrong one, but we didn't know at the time. So being faithful and listening carefully and being slow, uh, slow to act, except for moments where people are clearly in peril, mm. where we can.
0: Yeah. You mentioned earlier that we're, we're not called to be uh, successful decision makers all the time obviously it's great if we make successful decisions but um sounds like you're describing just a a a humility and a really and a willingness to recognize what is and is not within our capacity to to control in those kind of situations and just seeking wisdom discernment restraint
1: yeah and also you know letting people off the hook when things go down like traumatic things People's bodies will react differently. So some, it is just a fact that even in it's well studied in combat. Some people will just freeze. Some people will soil themselves, and it's not anything to do with whether they're brave or noble or cowardly. Like their body, it's the, the sympathetic nervous system. It just reacts, right? So if you have like somebody in peril and somebody just stands there, shocked, frozen, doesn't know what to do, and they they just can't move they didn't do anything wrong. Like that's how their body reacts. Uh, But the people who can move if there's a situation, a fire, danger, violence, something like that, uh, then we expect them uh, to come in. And uh, no better friend than someone who lays down their life for a friend, right? Um, Or a stranger even. So I think uh, we have to be willing. Um, And we brought it up earlier, but it's worth bringing up like, when can you lie? Because that's what we really all want to know. It's like, when can you tell the, the noble lies, right, as they say? Uh, so what would you be willing to lie for? If, if your mom sent you a picture and said, hey, how do I look in this? And you're thinking <laughs> in your head, you look hideous. <laughs> Sorry, Matana's mom. I'm sure you look great in everything you've ever worn. but
0: Mom's amazing. Yeah. Shout out to mom. <laughs> so
1: let's just say there's one thing where you're just thinking to yourself, like, nope, this is not it. This is not the dress you're looking for, mom. Look, Move along.
0: Well, thankfully, my mom and I have the kind of relationship where we can both be pretty honest with each other. But I think I think for me in that kind of a situation, when there's not um, someone's safety on the line, it's more of just you know being sensitive to how people feel, I would opt for... The truth, delicate, like the truth, the, delicate. the truth spoken delicately, Um, but then again, like that's also more of like a low risk situation yeah. as well. So it would probably be different if they were if the stakes were higher.
1: Yeah, and so I think when we look in scripture and we can look at uh, other examples outside of scripture. What we'll see is, just as we said, institutional evils, um, institutional evils have to be countered with systemic justice or systemic righteousness. So you can think of like Shifra and Pua in uh, um, August, Exodus is the name of the book, <laughs> the two midwives um, to the Hebrews who both – told something that wasn't, they withheld information. It's not clear exactly whether they're lying. They might have just been walking slow to the birthing stool and just letting the Hebrews birth before they get there, and they didn't have the chance to kill the children, and that was their way out. But they certainly veiled the truth in some way. Um, But they had to, like, work together as a team to do that, to, like, commit this civil disobedience against the governor who had decreed uh, the murder of these children, because they thought that this was fundamentally an inhumane uh, decree Uh, in the same way I mean famously during World War II you know most of France um, it did not go well with France and the Nazis right France kind of rolled over and began uh, participating in many of the evils of the Nazis against Jews and others Um, except for in I'm sure lots of little places but in one Huguenot village now Huguenots are like uh, Calvinist in France so they were also persecuted and murdered by the Catholics during the, you know, the, the Protestant wars. So they knew what it was like to be a persecuted people. That's what's important, right? They knew what it was like to be a foreigner in Egypt, as it were. And so when uh, Jews began bringing the Huguenots in this one village, Le Chambon de Surignan, um, they started bringing them their children. And, and they said, we can't protect ourselves as adults, but can you keep our children? And as a village, I think... They housed and hid something in the order of like 2,000 Jewish children in which everybody in the city had to be complicit in this. Right, so if you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, everybody was complicit in like publicly violating uh, strangers. Uh, they had to be complicit in this lie. So when the Nazis came into town – and were searching and investigating. They all had to stay quiet. They all had to, they didn't get any more food. So they had a lot of them diverted their own food rations to the children and, and chose to absorb the violence of, of food rationing on their own bodies. Um, And so you could say, so if you have this really simplistic, like, how you teach your children don't lie, which you have to do that at some point, like, let's make some clear lines of demarcation. That's a lie. This is the truth, right? But when you get into the the teenage world and and grown-up world of lies and truths, if you just have the simplistic, like, Christians shouldn't lie, uh, well, that pretty much would guarantee a couple thousand children went to a concentration camp. So we're not even talking about lesser of two evils in this case. We're just like, yeah, I have no problem saying there are no Jewish children in this village because you are going to murder all of them. I have no problem saying sorry, I can't get to the birthing school uh, stool as quickly because you're going to murder all of them, and the gears of your power are so totalizing that I can't go against them. I can't, I can't civilly, I can't um, protest. I can't file a petition with the government that's going to do anything. The only action I can do is hide them, feed them, and lie to you. Right, and that has to be complicit and systemic. Uh, and it's complicit in systemic righteousness, if you want to put it that way. And which is why the people of the Shambon are still considered in Israel today, part of that, that league of people of the righteous who, who saved Jews.
0: Hmm. That's a helpful, that's a helpful example, I think. And, um, I mean, I think a lot of people have this like, oh no, I shouldn't lie. So I think, I think it's helpful just to have the bigger picture in mind when those kind of ethical decisions have to be made. Um, hopefully, none of us will have to find ourselves in a situation where we're forced to make that kind of a decision. But it is helpful to have those examples in mind. Um,
1: well, was it the? I was, I was just thinking, is it the hiding place where the hiding? Yes, where Corey and uh, uh, what's her sister? The, the one, the, the actual good good girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I forget. I forget her name. Her name, name but... is Escape. Any no, no help from the producers. Uh, <laughs> uh, Corey and Beck, Be- not Becky. It's. Betsy uh,
0: Betsy was her other sister. It was the other sister besides betsy, yeah. but yeah,
1: who refused to lie yeah. right, and she's like the Jews are under the table, and the Nazis thought she was joke- or being sarcastic mm-hmm. right um yeah and 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 let's just agree, like we have already before, as soon as we're invoking Nazis as examples, we are talking about the outer extremes of ethical decision making only to reflect back into like the more daily common one, but notice like. Day to day, I'm not thinking about whether to lie to a guy on the sidewalk or whether to lie to a Nazi at my door. Um, the task of the, the community of God is actually to systemically build up righteousness so that if we have to do these things, like for the sake of people who are vulnerable amongst us. So mm, to have the kind
0: of values instilled in us that we could make those decisions as a community yeah, our, if ima- they came to us. Our
1: imaginations are already robust enough to understand how it will work uh, given various situations. Mm.
0: Um, hmm, that's helpful. So we talked a little bit about um, – like civil disobedience and and protest um, as a path to righteousness that maybe bypasses some sins that we would otherwise have to be okay with on the way. (laughs) Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that civil disobedience and protest movements are always clear of, um, it's it's gray. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best way I know how to sin, say it. Sin
1: is right there in the center of civil disobedience <laughs> and protest for noble things. Right, yeah. right.
0: So, what would you what would you have to say about that? And like, what does it look like defying authorities whenever we believe that something is right, um, but go like quite literally disobeying, quote unquote, against yeah. the stated authority at the time.
1: Um, I mean, a lot of biblical scholars go straight to Exodus, go back to not just Shifra and Pua, but Shifra and Pua civilly disobeyed uh, Pharaoh's order. Moses' mother and father disobeyed the order, although you could say she did a wink-wink because she's like, throw the child in the Nile, and she's like, okay, I'll put him in the Nile. You didn't say I couldn't put a boat around him, right? Um, Then Pharaoh's own daughter uh, disobeys and brings the Hebrew into the household. So, um, we actually see the, the beginning of the noble women of scripture who uh, can it 's interestingly the the men are completely silent here like uh, like, like what is moses dad 's name anyway right uh, we, we know Jochebed. Uh, I'm, I actually I think we do know his name uh, the dad 's name i can 't remember what it is off the top of my head though. Um, But we see her action. Oh, Miriam as well goes along and and is complicit in this kind of like the veiled truth of Mm -hmm. like, oh, I can go find someone to nurse this child for you. (laughs) It it happens to be his mother who just gave birth to him, right? Um, But what they're showing us is people who understand, they understand God as creator in some way. They understand the value of a human life and they're committed to it and they're actually putting themselves on the line for it. If you think of the civil rights marches in the 1960s, as one of my ethics professors in seminary used to point out, um, the civil rights protests were protests about uh, correctly reading the Constitution. That you, you know, what does it mean to have equanimity amongst humans in this particular social setting of the South and Jim Crow laws and the latency of uh, the long, uh, demonic, if I can use that word, tale of slavery, right? That, that moves into the South, continues in the South. Um, and they were just saying, look, we have this ideal of equanimity amongst humans, but the reality of it is not true. Can we please enforce the reality that is the ideal for black people as well as white people? That was the civil rights protest in a nutshell. And they're actually asking for like what we would just consider bottom line, you know, bottom shelf decency amongst humans. Um, And they put their bodies and lives out on the literally on the line, like they're getting physically attacked and and people were getting killed and lynching. I mean, if you've never studied the history of lynching in the South, it is straight up Al Qaeda ISIS terrorism uh, of the worst. It's as bad or worse than anything ISIS was doing uh, in Syria uh, of white people against uh, blacks. And so. Like, they put their lives out there on the line. They were battling every day um, for something that we would now all agree is exactly right and wasn't fast enough, wasn't soon enough, and every white person should have been out there protesting. Everybody looks back and says, yeah, we should have all been out there, and they were right, and we were all wrong. That, to me, feels different than— protesting on Twitter about X, Y, or Z or, you know, very cheap and easy. So when the, uh, uh George Floyd issues have, uh, when, when his death happened and all the protesting that came with it, I was glad to see people protesting. I think it was all right, um, to see people out there on the streets, making the claim, demanding some reform because there's some reforms that need to happen. And who knows how that's going to go in the future. Um, it was interesting to me to see people, Saying, if you don't decry racism of this sort, if you don't call things out as racism on your social media, then you are a racist, right? And there was this kind of like honor-shame culture of canceling. We've talked about canceling before. That, to me, is a different form of uh, civil engagement and, and disobedience that comes with it. Um that I'm not sure was always helpful. Um, and there were versions of this in the civil rights movement as, as well. There were unhelpful moments and parts of that as there will always be because sin is right there involved. I think we have to say, like at what point are the lives of our brothers and sisters being diminished? And are we willing to absorb violence? Are we willing to um, to be ashamed or publicly shamed? People, were, they go like, oh, you believe in that? I mean, I think of like, for me, abortion is one of those things where I would say like, yeah, I'd actually be fully willing to be publicly shamed. Uh, I, I do think it's um, I do think it's an unethical practice. I know some, even Christians will disagree with that. Um, but I think we have to make these decisions and not do cheap and easy uh, yelling, but actually be willing to do what people have always done, they've put their bodies and their lives out there in order to disobey for the sake of, of the vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, and defining vulnerability very carefully as well, because you know we're all Americans living the life of opulence. Even our poorest in America, for the most part, are still living pretty good lives. So uh, we just have to c- carefully find our way through this. Mm. So I'm like, yes, civilly mm. disobey, absolutely <laughs> for for the rights of different races, people's gender issues. Absolutely, uh, mm. let's do it where it's necessary, but wisely enter into it.
0: Mm. I love you mentioned wisdom, wisdom, discernment, and restraint. That kind of keeps coming yeah, back as a it's theme. It's amazing. Like
1: and <laughs> restraint, in order that you can go forward and do mm-hmm. like not restraint, like don't do anything, yeah. don't be passive, but restraint in order to be active in the right ways, mm-hmm. right?
0: Like meaningful, thoughtful action rather than uh, reactivity. Yeah,
1: and place. I mean churches should be thinking about what are the things that we should be out protesting. Mm-hmm. I was so happy to see. I was in St. Louis when the Ferguson riots happened. Because uh, my mother in law lived just a mile away from the, where those riots were, uh, and I was so happy to see so many predominantly white churches that had, as a church, organized and said, "This is something we want to go out and protest. This is something we want to be involved in, like helping be part of the solution of some community policing problems that are happening here." Uh, and I think that I think that was absolutely fantastic. And they did. They put many of them got arrested, or you know, at least put themselves in the firing line of. of um, some some violence that was happening there. Not, it was very constrained violence, but there was some violence there. So I think as a community. So again, if it's like I'm in it. So when you get into the really radical protest, the far right and the far left, you watch these documentaries, and I've known people like personally. I've known people who are involved in these things. They're all highly individualist uh, personalities that get together, that agree to get together to do this kind of committing violence or committing civil disobedience. That's very different from a a Christian community committing to saying every time something like this happens we're going to show up and we're going to help. Maybe we'll just feed people who are there, maybe we'll hold signs, maybe we'll pray or whatever. Um so I think thinking as a community how do you how do you get involved is is ultimately important here. Mm,
0: that's helpful.
1: And not everybody, you know, not every church, not every community will choose that, right? Mm-hmm. So.
0: Well, this has been a helpful but heavy topic for sure. If you could offer a word of encouragement to our audiences, what would that be?
1: Um, again, I think I want to release the pressure. We, the kingdom of God is not in the business of making a bunch of ethical choices. The kingdom of God is about, for Israel and for the new covenant, it is becoming the kind of people who proliferate righteousness as the antidote to all the evil and corruption and decay in the world. And so we're building something that's meant to be strong, that's meant to look out and anticipate wisely where um, where people will fall and stumble. Uh, we're not me- we are reacting, but we're not merely reacting to the the world we're in. And so I think we should have a lot of confidence that this is what Jesus modeled for us. He's like, I didn't. I'm not just reacting to people. Like I'm I'm showing you what the kingdom of God is like. And I think we should. I think we should feel more bold. Um, and we should. Absolutely, get out of our churches. Mm. Get like Our church is not where we have Sunday worship. Our church is where we actually go do the righteousness of God that he's called us to do, mm. which includes our Sunday worship.
0: <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for that. We have one episode left, and in our final episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about the how— like the how, just in general, how do we address these things? What do we do about them? Because I know that we've we've talked a lot about what evil is, what good is, how we see that play out in our worlds, um, both in history and now. And I think it's important for us to know, what do we do with all of this? What What changes in our personal lives in light of this knowledge and understanding? So Please join us. If you've been with us up until now, you'll want to make sure you don't miss the final episode. Thank you for joining us for um, for season two, and we will see you one last time in episode ten. Thanks for listening to season two of Discover Your Roots The Problem of Good and Evil. To find more resources like this, subscribe to our newsletter at passagesisrael.org forward slash foundations. Again, that's passagesisrael.org forward slash foundations. You can also follow us on social media and learn more about Israel and the Bible at passagesisrael. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe and leave a five-star review. Until next time, I'm Matana DeWitt. Thanks for listening.